You're listening to Lady Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. Greetings and welcome to episode 8 of Lave Radio, the podcast that covers the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. I'm your badly photoshopped host, second technician, Fozzer Forrester, and joining me as always in the orange sidewinder of Radio Nirvana is the man who, after last week's show, makes Mr. Grumpy look like Mr. Happy on Acid, Alan Stroud. Cheers. The what in space are you doing out of the recording studio, Christopher Jarvis? Hi. And finally, Lave Radio's own master control program, John Blaster. Hello. E- <laughs> Evening, gentlemen. How are we doing? Sorry, I was just trying to work out, is that an anagram? It is an anagram of Stabler. Yes, it is. That's pretty good. That's yeah. what I thought. I'm quite jealous he's, about that. Yeah, he's showing his IQ this week, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. I just realised that I've submitted my uh, character name to Frontier and I didn't think of Blaster. <laughs> now, guys, before we start, we need to, uh, Lave Radio needs to issue uh, a, a retraction and a correction for a couple of things we've said in the last couple of podcasts. Um, after discussing the last newsletter, Ashley quite rightly pointed out that the, the planets in the newsletter were engine generated. They weren't mock-ups. Uh, we thought, you know, I, I suggested that maybe they were targets for the game to aim for and he pointed out these these were actually proper engine things so just to be clear on that the other thing is in the previous podcast we were talking about adult content uh, you know in the game and we referred to the current kind of elite fan base as being very mature i think what we meant is old <laughs> I, don't, I don't think maturity really really comes into it I, I was kind of wondering where you were going there i thought uh, you know <laughs> Oh, it's always nice to start the podcast on an apology, Chris. Well done, mate. <laughs> um, okay, guys. So, what's uh, what's everybody up with? How's your how's your take in the league, Chris? Tell us about uh, what you've been up to this week. Uh, yeah, I've got a big recording session coming up with the cast and some new guys getting on board for Escape Velocity. So, really, you know, it's been it's been all hands to the pump, just trying to get uh, as many scripts together as possible because they're coming out to record for a whole day. Um, and really, we want to get as many episodes in the can as we possibly can. So, yeah, just means it takes a bit of pressure off the actors for recording over the coming series. It takes a bit of pressure off me in the long run uh, so I can focus on editing and just, just write episodes in batches. Um, but, yeah, that's that's me. Cool stuff. Alan? Uh, this week I had an article published in uh, SF Signal, which was uh, was very cool. If anyone doesn't know it, SF Signal are a, a very good science fiction fan site. Um, uh, over at ssignal.com and um, there's a, an article on successful Kickstarters and what Kickstarter does uh, to the publishing industry. So it was quite interesting. Um, well, it was for me and uh, <laughs> I enjoyed writing it and uh, it was nice to you know to sort of make the contact and connection from there. Um, we've just announced the meeting for the initial planning meeting for Elite Lave Revolution, the film. That's next Wednesday. So the students are quite excited. We're going to uh, sit and go through what what we're going to be doing. Um, what else have I done? Some eleventh hour recording music for Chris. Me. Um, which, if anybody doesn't know the story of uh, episode two of Escape Velocity, with uh, a particular moment of Friday night, Chris coming and going, I really can't find something that fits on this. 
can you have a listen? And so I had a listen and gave him some comments and then said, yeah, no, that, that doesn't work on there. We discussed it and I said, okay, I'm going with the loft. <laughs> and about five hours later, he got a piece of music, which, uh, you know, was okay. Um, and since then, I've, I've sort of More reorchestrated okay. it. And since then, I've reorchestrated it and uh, put it together a little bit better. And um, so I'm really pleased with the result. And is this the one that you've actually sent out to your Kickstarter backers as well? It is the one I've sent out to my Kickstarter backers. Um, that's gone out to everybody who was entitled to one MP3 from the album. So more to come for those that are entitled to more. John, what about you? What have you been up to this week, sir? I've been um, programming my computer because I've been working on a project, which I'm hopefully going to talk about in the community section, perhaps. Uh, and that is it. That's all I've been doing. I've been programming stuff. John, I know that uh, that's not actually true because you've helped me out with one of the things I've been doing this week, which was recording the first episode of The Conclave, which is Lave Radio's community podcast, where we get some of the community from the forum and we talk about some of the hot topics that's currently being talked about in the Elite Dangerous Development Cycle. The latest episode, we had Drew Wagar, David Hughes, John Gibson, Ian Phillips, and Grant Wilcox. So that's currently going through the editing phase and will be released next week. Uh, as well as that, we also had the interview with Lisa Wolf, the writer interview. I really enjoyed that interview. I thought Lisa was really interesting. It's the first time we've also heard from any of the anthology writers, and they've got a slightly different dynamic of how they're creating their fiction as to some of the other writers. So that was quite interesting as well. So yeah, so a busy week all in all. Going on to the news section. Uh, the first of news we had from Frontier Development this week was the development video from David Braben, where he talked about 3D cockpits. He modeled the brand new T-shirt for all those people that ordered a T-shirt and obviously answered a few questions from the forum. So we'll start off on something that wasn't contentious and that's the 3D cockpits. I take it we all thought these were a grace idea. Yeah, no, they were absolutely fantastic. I thought it was a, a really good idea. And the yeah, the ideas behind what he was saying as well about locating yourself inside the cockpit through the through the render, you know, and the sort of the shape of what's there. Really good. You know, it was a, a really nice idea, nice little tiny thing that probably isn't too difficult for them to put together, but it, you know, it really does make a difference. So yeah, no, great idea. And also if you think about the fact that, you know, Ultimately, we're going to be walking around in these ships as well. It's nice that they're actually thinking far enough ahead so that they're planning the 3D cockpits so that in the future expansions, it will all just seamlessly link to when you're walking around these ships. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, it also makes you think as well about the larger uh, ships that you might pilot or use about, you know, where you can go to and who would be sat at what station and other bits and pieces. So, yeah, really interesting. I'm actually, well, I'm not going to go on a downer about it. I think it's a good feature, and I was really surprised that they were going to have it from the off. They did explain that it was because eventually people are going to be able to walk around their ships anyway, so okay, great. But one of the great things I thought about previous games was the serious lack of cockpit, that you just had the very small dash at the bottom of the screen. Obviously, I'm thinking of Frontier mostly here, and it was mostly, you know, viewport, you had space. Um, obviously with cockpits that's going to be obscured a lot more and as somebody who has very poor eyesight and who struggles with any kind of game where there's any kind of like fast-paced element to it the cockpits i'm kind of slightly wary about it would be nice if there was a way to in some games you're able to kind of turn the view off and like have a camera mode a forward-facing camera i would probably really appreciate that but well no that's um, that's a very good point um i actually i one of the things i um, had a problem with with Privateer 2 was 
the lack of, of interface. I actually found it really intimidating that I didn't have a dashboard. I couldn't see where any of the controls were. Um, and I didn't have any kind of referencing point to to seeing the space outside. So from my point of view, I actually like, you know, I, 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 it sounds really weird, but there is a almost a stability in having the you know, the dash in front of you and the other bits and pieces and then the viewport out. But what you're saying, obviously, about, you know, sort of site differences and, and you know, issues with regards to site differences, I mean, a toggle system would be very simple in that regard, wouldn't it? Uh, the other nice thing about, obviously, the 3D cockpits, which we'll come on to a bit later, is the uh, the DDF discussion at the moment is all about um, news feeds and the uh, frontier developments are talking about your news feeds actually appearing on one of those um, cockpit consoles on screen. So you're receiving information through that as well, which would be quite a nice little feature. So we all like the 3D cockpits, and obviously that yeah, they link in slightly with the newsletter as well, which we'll come on to in a bit. The thing that I think universally the community was not overly impressed with was David Braben's attire, this being the elite T-shirts that uh, backers are going to receive, and the ever-so-subtle elite logo that seems to be emblazoned on the front of it, basically going from armpit to armpit and down to his navel. What do you guys reckon? Do you think it was the most subtle logo in the world? Well, I'm just thinking that if they've got several boxes in the broom cupboard of 5,000 T-shirts, <laughs> I, I guess they're never going to be short of something to wash their cars with at Frontier <laughs> Developments. I spotted it pretty much straight away, I think. The email hit me and straight away I said, oh dear, you know, that's that's a pretty big logo on the front of there. And I thought maybe it's just me being my cynical self, but there seems to have been a lot of negative reaction on the forums as well. Because, and let's be honest... Remember, the the target audience is kind of middle-aged men, and having two diagonal things going across your chest, it does highlight your (laughs) moves. And weren't you saying to me that actually it reminded you quite of a sort of a biker look about it? Yeah, I'm not sure David Braben's ever had before. I I, I don't know. I think, you know, I I guess I got an image of, because you have, you know, quite a lot of the sort of the Hell's Angel sort of style biker idea with, with a big leather coat and a big... Uh, a symbol emblazoned on the back of the big leather coat and i just took a look at it and thought yeah is it is it is it like appealing to the biker crowd i'm i'm kind of not sure um so alan Alan, are you saying then that this man that we are resting all of our hopes and dreams in on producing this incredible game doesn't know which is the front or back of a t-shirt when he puts it on no chris no i'm not saying um the i mean i was i was gonna say about the the t-shirt itself I don't know. I I'm not that bothered to be honest. It's it's got the logo on it, yes, uh, which is awesome, and it's a, a you know a t-shirt with with the Elite Dangerous logo on, and in that regard, it will be great. Will I wear it? Yes, probably if I have one. But I, I don't know how often I go out anywhere in just a t-shirt. You know, I, it's not generally what I. I think it's always true, though, because over the years I've picked up a lot of kind of game T-shirts and I've never really... I mean, admittedly, I used to wear them when I was younger and then various girlfriends, you know, beat it out of me that it, whether or not it's acceptable to wear a gaming T-shirt. But the ones with, certainly the ones with big logos, you know, have never, have never looked good. And I think recently there's more of a vogue for those kind of, those T-shirts you can get that aren't actually officially licensed. They're kind of, they have like subtle nods to what movie or whatever they're referencing. So you can buy like a, you can get like a Terminator 2 T-shirt that rather than having Terminator 2 on the front, it has like a staff badge for Cyberdyne Systems or something like that. Or you can get like a crew T-shirt for the um, marine ship out of Aliens, that sort of thing. And they have quite nice subtle logos on. So maybe a nice kind of, you know, Colin McGrath 
Yeah, like it would be kind of like if you were a true elite fan that you'd walk around in like a lave radio t-shirt or something like that. Well, clearly. <laughs> was that where you were going with that, Chris? <laughs> do, you know, do you know, that was quite a good segue. It didn't occur to me at all. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so um, the other part of obviously the David Braben video was the questions and just picking out the ones that we thought were quite interesting. The question about whether or not repair kits are going to be available in game. And David Braben obviously said, yes, there will be a module that will repair your ship to a smaller degree but um, the main aspect is that if you're going to do an explorer role then you're probably going to have to save up and buy the explorer class ships which are a little bit more uh, resilient sort of breakdowns a little bit more sort of catering for the the long distance journeys everybody else think this was a good idea yeah and i can't remember the exact words but you know you remember the whole repair kit from frontier you could buy a whole repair system and it took up quite a sizable amount of your ship, so it was for larger ships only. Yeah. And although he didn't say it, I thought he was almost like insinuating that that kind of technology would be there, which was like this nanotechnology. And I suppose that would fit quite well with the exploration in so much that if you're going to explore, you need a large ship. And so that would be available. And so you could maybe not worry so much about your hull getting damaged you would just need to return to the core systems whatever every so often to get your hyperdrive serviced or whatever that's just what i read into it i guess speaking about the um whole repair kits in frontier was it just me that bought those with a panther clipper and put lots of shields on and then just parked outside the space station and shot the entrance and just let all the vipers crash into me and explode no i did that as well Oh, excellent. I thought it would be one of those uh, favourite pastimes because that thing was just an absolute beast. When you put shields on it and the whole repair kit, nothing could hurt you. I found that the Vipers tended to scramble from the space station and crash into each other. I didn't need to do anything. There was an element of that as well, of course. (laughs) Uh, The other question from the video was uh, the fact that uh, people were asking whether or not it was going to be possible to control fleets of NPC ships, carriers setting up like almost a caravan run. And David Braben did say that uh, that's not really the core of the game that we're trying to create. So possibly they'd look at it for future expansions, but certainly from initial launch, that's not the plan. It's going to be one man, one ship, which I think I certainly thought was a good idea. I know, Alan, you've played X Beyond the Frontier and stuff, which I believe have of mules in there where you can sort of automate ships and stuff for trading but um, it was never anything that was really involved in uh, in the Elite universe. I think as well it, it would be difficult in that the X series very clearly don't go into the multiplayer and of course the minute that you go into a multiplayer situation and you've got you know an estimated amount of, of people playing and you know this you know how many people will be a, an average day if you've got that going and you've got a load of automated ships that they're they're working on and once that you know if that code is in place then it's exploitable so you know then you have a, a an exponential amount of additional automated ships it gets very much into a, a resource management game which is not what they're designed to make so yeah I, you know I'm I'm kind of pleased as well, really. I mean, ultimately, I would like to see players be able to really shape the universe. So, you know, owning stations, um, owning facilities, creating produce, selling produce. But automation in terms of freighters and other things being a sort of a a, a mogul or, a a, you know, a sort of a a big businessman, that's not for the, the start of the game. What we don't want to get into... And you know, and I think this is this is an important point is that there are many multiplayer online games that you get to a certain level and you max, mm. and at that point you're only the only content that's really interesting is the things that are new. 
So, you know, you can't improve anything. You know, you're just left with whatever this week's latest new update is. I don't want Elite Dangerous to ever be there. I'd rather Elite Dangerous did you know, avoided that kind of maxing system, as it were, um, and just found ways to cater for players in you know, to play the game in different ways. And I think you can do that. And I, I don't think necessarily that that means, you know, huge business empires. Yeah, absolutely. And I know uh, John and I have both played EVE Online, uh, probably me a little bit more than John. But again, the, the commanders or your character in EVE Online, you know, you haven't got a set role. You have to obviously train the same way as you can be a bounty hunter and explorer. You just have to train the skill sets in EVE Online to be whatever direction you want to go in. But one of the things that they added you know, later on down the line was this planetary interaction where you could you know, learn to do the, the whole management resource and you could set up mines and you can set up factories. And I have to say, I trained all the skills to do that and I did it for about four weeks, six weeks, and I was bored out of my brain because it actually involved you driving your ship to that particular solar system, making sure all the materials were moved from one planet to another planet and all the raw materials were moved back. And it was literally... <laughs> I mean, it, you could have just been a FedEx driver or something. It was that tedious. Picking up bits from here, taking it there, and starting the whole process off again. So well, I would really hope not to see that in Elite. Well, what was the what was the sequel game that... Oh, I remember what it was. Supreme Commander. The guys from Total Annihilation, you know, obviously went off and did Supreme Commander. And the, the thing that was known about their games was that, yeah, they did produce some good things. But there was also yeah, that sort of era of of RTS with, you know, particular resource management development and so on and so forth. There was a thing about that where you ended up micromanaging resources. And actually, when you realize that you bought a game to fight a war, you know, you bought a game that that sold it to you with missiles and tanks and, you know, laser beams and stuff, and actually you're spending more time watching a balance sheet, it's kind of not the game, is it? Now, I, I quite like Supreme Commander, but Total Annihilation, I felt, was... Was was overly resourcey, and I think um, didn't they? They did a fantasy version, didn't they? Um, Titan Nation Kingdoms or something like that. Yeah, and I think it was uh, very, very resource management driven. And I, I kind of, I kind of want them to avoid that, you know, because the the main thing is about take your ship, get your credits, do your upgrades, and get out there and go and find out what's going on. You know, that's 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 the core elite. And at the start of the game, we certainly that's what we want. Nobody's got anything else to say on the development progress video. We can move straight on to the feature request number 11, which is control methods and inputs. Is your life like this? It could be like this. Astrogator Tours. Put some excitement back in your life. Walk an adventure. The lathe business director. Now. The what now? So we've got um, questions coming in. So, one of the things that uh, several people have asked is whether or not we're considered creating um, iOS or Android apps that will allow players to monitor things such as in game markets or even provide additional functionality as a control method. The developers have said that, you know, they may be associated apps in the future, but certainly they haven't got time to look at it for initial release. But it is something they want to look into. Now, John, when you were talking about doing development stuff for future expansions and things, you were more interested in applications that actually ran alongside the game, weren't you? Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, I'm glad they're thinking about it. I mean, I wouldn't expect them to have it, you know, off the bat on the first release. I'm 
I'm hoping they're just you know worrying about bringing out an excellent game. But it's nice to see that they've categorically said again that yes, they are thinking of doing this uh, in the future. It's a bit more concrete than just the usual, yeah, maybe. And I think it, it could be very interesting. There's so many games out there now. And, you know, I always go to World of Warcraft as an example, but it's because it's such a good example where you can have an application, you can log into it. And even if it's just a web application, it doesn't have to be something for iOS or Android, but it will tell you if your friends are online. You know, you you know, your missus says to you, do you want to watch this really bad romantic comedy I've got on DVD <laughs> or, or what? And then you just quickly look at your phone, you see there's at least six people online. Nope, love, I'm going to go and raid or something like that. Yeah. That's quite handy. But I was also, you know, when I was thinking about it, yes, I was thinking about, um, you know, from a leap perspective, wouldn't it be great if you could, you know, get alerts about events that were happening? For instance, if all of a sudden there was a war ongoing or a famine, you know, these things that David Braben's been talking about, you instantly know that something big's happening in some system not too far from you, and you can just hop online and go and take advantage of it. Um, I think that would be fantastic. But also, yeah, market data, and, and that'd be brilliant. Okay, so the next part of the feature update, the Oculus Rift. Um I know we've mentioned it on the podcast before. Basically, for those people that don't know, it's a Kickstarter-backed project to get a functional virtual reality headset into the home um, where you can interact with the world around you in your cockpit just by turning your head. Now, Frontier Developments have said that you don't actually have a software developer's kit for it, so it won't be in the initial release. But they do think it's quite exciting. It is something they'd want to look at uh, further down the line. Um, Linked to that, some people have also asked about head tracking uh, technology such as Track IR. Again, Frontier have no idea what the tech's all about, so it certainly won't be in the uh, the first release. So the next point was something that is quite dear to my heart because I'm running two monitors here on the desktop, and that is multi-monitor support, which people have asked about, which would, of course, make the game a lot more immersive for you know for a lot of players. And it's something that Frontier Development says it's definitely something they intend to support. Um, they've said that it's nothing concrete for day one, uh, but it will definitely be rolled out eventually. Am I the only person that's running more than one monitor? I was going to say, you, you say it'll make it immersive for a lot of players. I think what you mean is it will make it more immersive for a small group of players. Really? I'm not yeah. sure it's a small group of players that only have one monitor these days. I think a lot of people are running more than one monitor. No, I hate to say it, I'm with Jarvis on this one. Well, it's two for two then, because um, I'm running two monitors. See, most modern graphics cards have the ability to run more than one monitor, and most people are updating PCs to the point where they've probably got an old monitor kicking about. So I, that's all I've done. I've literally just you know, taken my old monitor and bought a new one to go with it. They're really cheap these days. They're about like yeah. 99 quid. So are your two monitors different sort of sizes and models? Yeah, well, no, they're both Samsungs, but uh, one is a 21-inch and one's a 19-inch, which is a bit of a pain in the ass, but... but yeah, well, I've, I've got I've got three. Um, I've only got two rigged into the computer at the moment, but I'm planning to put all three on for the um, for actual gameplay because I'm I'm rekitting the loft uh, to uh, uh, to manage you know sort of more stuff. But um, I've got a 19 inch, and uh, I think the other one's two 17 inch monitors. Yeah. So, um, and then the idea will be the 19 inch would be in the middle, and then the two 17 inches be inside. See, I'm kind of, I, I come from it from a point of view of, you know, I guess looking at sort of photography and film um, and also thinking about games. I mean, you know, most of the gaming that I do these days 
um, is on is on consoles and handhelds and things, which has a obviously just has a single screen anyway. And I think of it in terms of directing the player's attention. And I would rather see them focus on making that one display work really well and be so kind of optimized and perfect for the way that you get the way that you play the game that extraneous monitors kind of wouldn't show you anything and and i kind of yeah i kind of go with that that i would rather see that but not just because i'm like a big one monitor fan i may be interested in multiple monitors but the thing is i'm very particular about what i want and i don't think they'll do it the way i want what i'd want is (laughs) i would like my cockpit view on one monitor and then on the other monitor i'd like like a purely informational or lists. I'd like to see my inventory, like a like um, an at a glance thing. It would be a, a very utilitarian view, not as a lot of people would want, where they'd have say their one monitor in front of them, two monitors either side, which would be like cock, um, you know, either side of the cockpit, so they could see out the sides. Yeah, no, it's, I, I have to agree with you on that, John. It's not what I'd want. What I'd want is a you know, one monitor viewport, and then using the other monitors for for utility functions. So you might have the star map on one monitor, and you might have um, yeah, definitely. the the trade screens and and newsfeed on the other monitor. So you know, if you were using three, I don't but know. Going I back mean, a step, isn't that what your apps are for? That's the whole point, Chris. You can connect the two ideas. So actually, if you mm. programmed it for if you programmed it for because you got different styles of play for you know different people. If you programmed it for for two or three displays. Then, if the if the use of a, an additional device like a Kindle or an iPhone or or an app, you know, an iPad, um, effectively just took the feed of one of the monitors, that'd be great. Okay, so you know, maybe you you put a bit of key functionality into it as well, um, so that it can you know actually register an input just like your keyboard can or just like your mouse can. But that would do, and, and it's actually a fairly easy way to implement both solutions because we're talking about. Lots of different people playing games in different ways. You know, my setup is going to be entirely different to Foz's. It's going to be entirely different to yours. It's going to be entirely different to John's. If you just make it simple and, you know, unify the, the two ideas together, then, you know, it's not, not a difficult win. Well, going back to what we were already talking about in terms of uh, Supreme Commander. Supreme, Supreme Commander was the first game that really advertised itself as a multi-monitor um, interface and all they did was exactly what John's just said. So on the one side, on say your left-hand monitor, you had the overview of the you know, the map where you moved your you know, your units around, and then on the right-hand side, you had all of your sort of your as Alan says, your micromanagement. So you'd have your your overall sort of top-down map uh, with little icons on, so you can have the overall view of the the battlefield. But then you've also got your your energy management and what's in your your build queue and stuff like that. EVE Online does it slightly differently where you can just basically expand it onto the monitors. So that viewport that you were talking about, you can literally just stretch it straight across the two. And for a game that's as pretty as EVE Online, you know, having the extra real estate on screen is lovely. Really, really nice. And also with the big fleet battles, it does help to give you a bigger uh, sort of overview of exactly what's going on. Now, I don't really mind. If there's an option of doing it, one big viewport's great. If there's an option of having it so you can see your inventory or your star map and other thing on the other monitor, that'd be fine with that too. But I do think in this day and age for a space sim, uh, you should probably have multi-monitor support. You know, let's, let's look at the previous games. The previous games had functionality set into the F keys and you could effectively go to different 
aspects of your your play, uh, depending on which F key you pressed. If there was an ability just to set those F key screens up so that they dropped over to different monitors, job's done. Because in in both senses, certainly in Elite, if you uh, remember all that way back, you could look at your side view and you could yeah. look at your rear view by pressing an F key. Um, but you could also look at your star map, look at the, the details of uh, the planet that you were aiming for, look at your commander card and your inventory by pressing an F key. Uh, moving on to the next point, um, there was questions asked about whether or not uh, Frontier Development will actually include voice recognition in the game uh, or if it was something they could implement. Um, <laughs> the general consensus from Frontier was no, which is fine because I'm not sure it really added much anyway. Um, but finally, the last point on the feature update was the the happy knowledge that for those joystick fans out there, there will be joystick support from the get-go. Full access joystick support will be included, and then they haven't actually firmed up whether or not they will actually have uh, force feedback um, in there as well from the get-go, but it's certainly something that they would like to have. Now, I know there's at least two people on this podcast that are big joystick fans, that sounds really rude. Um, but <laughs> they're, they're <not> <laughs> um, but John, Alan, tell us why joysticks are so important and elite dangerous. Yeah, joysticks, yep, great news. Force feedback, pff, don't really care whether it's in or not because I don't like it. I usually turn it off. Oh, really? Because I would have thought force feedback, if you were getting shot, um, with what David Braben was saying about sort of the effect of shuddering in your cockpit and stuff that would be actually something that force feedback would be really helpful for yeah to be honest i don't like force feedback and to be honest when somebody mentioned that the cockpit was shaking i didn't like that idea either um it's just too much overload for my simple male only being able to concentrate (laughs) on the stars in front of me kind of mentality um but you know i'm sure some people would be like really happy to have force feedback but it's just i'm not bothered but you see, that, this is where not all force feedback is equal because force feedback these days tends to come across as, you know, a little bit of kind of vibration in the control pad or whatever. But force feedback, when it's done really well in a quality steering wheel or a quality joystick, to give an example, the first time I, I, I experienced it was with um, X-Wing Alliance um, and a friend of mine had the Microsoft Sidewinder Mm. with um, force feedback and he said it's a very different experience playing the game if you're going to use this force feedback you have to mind that you're not going to win and I didn't know what he meant but basically the the motors in the joystick are so strong that when your craft gets hit it forces the stick over to one side and you actually physically aren't strong enough to pull the joystick back to pull your craft out of the spin This wasn't just a little bit of vibration to suggest impact. This was actually directly mapping the maneuverability of your craft to your ability to control the joystick. And in the same way, if you've got like someone with a good quality force feedback steering wheel, if you're playing a game like um, like Gran Turismo 5, it's not just a little bit of rumble when you kind of go over, you know, the white line. You can actually feel through the steering wheel how much traction your tyres have with the road. In the same way that you can when you're driving a real car, you can tell by the feel of the steering wheel if you're in a skid. It's the same in a good quality force feedback setup. Yeah, and I think racing games have done it better. 
I've, your last example, definitely. Um, I didn't realise there was a joystick out there that was so powerful that you couldn't control it because <laughs> I couldn't. I, I actually had. I ended, up, I ended up having to bring a second hand up onto the stick to try and pull it back to yeah. centre. Uh, surely there's people breaking their joysticks because you now have some real strong dude <laughs> saying, "No, I want to recover from this spin," and just ripping the whole thing apart. <laughs> I mean, maybe the level was set too high, but it was very immersive. <laughs> Okay, so for this week's DDF, we have two topics. Uh, we've got communications in Elite and the newsfeed aspect in Elite. Going straight into communications in Elite, it seems to be quite a straightforward proposal, this one. Uh, so we're not going to spend that much time on it. Uh, the, the idea is that uh, ships in the Elite Dangerous Galaxy communicate through uh, text communications messages on the whole. These can be quick uh, messages granting permission to dock or long exchanges debating a mission or a deal. Uh, there'll be two types of communication interaction in the game. It'll either be player-to-player -player or player-to-non-player-controlled NPC. So players can lock onto each other and hail each other's ship uh, as long as the other player isn't actually ignoring them or they're not on the ignore list. And then they have three ways of communicating. They can either choose to type a message with a sort of free text mode, or they can use the inbuilt voice chat, or they can send over pre-configured messages. All pretty straightforward stuff. The stuff to uh, the NPC characters, that's all going to work through text communications, and it's all going to be preordained messages such as requests, docking permission, or uh, market information, etc., etc. Anybody got any points on communication? I mean, to be fair, this is actually one of the most straightforward DDF proposals that we've seen so far. Yes, it's very straightforward, um, and yeah, it se all seems pretty obvious. It's all fine. Um, I'm just going to put it on the record that by including voice chat, um, it's quite interesting because obviously you know they've they've got this idea of 32 players. Um, I know it's not set in stone; it may be more, but that's a lot of data over a peer-to-peer -peer network. And obviously, if you start adding voice chat into that as well, I'd be interested to see how that works in the real world with you know in the talking just about the uk in general average um, broadband speeds and things like that it'd be quite interesting to see if they can pull it off i think my my concerns about it they've got this thing in here about whether or not they need to think about like an abusive language filter yeah. um and i'll be honest my hope is that they don't um i appreciate the reasons why you have filters uh, on things but i <sighs> My experience of you know gaming over the years has been that most systems that have filters, people who really want to get their point across or get something rude across, find other ways of doing it that cheat the filters. And more often than not, the filters block out something that isn't intended to be rude. I mean, these lists of abusive words they come up with, half the time you end up getting stuff, you know, filtered out that doesn't need filtering out. And I, I mention it because it was on. It's actually on the Frontier forums. I tried to make a reference to... We were talking about something to do with history, and I made a reference to Nazi Germany. And the, the forums asterisked out the word Nazi. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what, are we censoring history now? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I don't even know. Frontier Development's a massive Holocaust denier. Oh, they are they? <laughs> massive Holocaust denier. <laughs> but I think it's... I think it, I think it always is. It, they're too difficult to implement, um, and I think most of the time you end up censoring people who aren't trying to be abusive, and people who really want to be abusive will still find a way. So, 
I, I think to be fair that the, the whole idea, I mean, looking at other multiplayer games, um, the language filter is is purely to tick a box. Yeah. Um, in terms of you know ratings, uh, if you want to have players as young as fourteen playing your multiplayer game, you need to put something in place. Even if you know, and let's be honest, as you said, in reality, it's ineffective. Um, and it's going to just be a pain in the ass for most people. You know, as long as players are able to say, look, I'm over 18 and I'm a big boy now, I'm going to untick the asterisk box. You know, I want to see the word Nazi. Um, <laughs> then I, I, I think it's okay. Because that, that's yeah, going to ruin a, a lot of my whole role-playing experience in this game, if I can't <laughs> say that. You're going to play the first ever Nazi pirate in space. <laughs> totally. I, I, I believe Iron Sky probably beat him to it. <laughs> It's a film I haven't seen, actually. But no, Chris, you, your point's well made because it, uh, it was pretty much one of the first or second uh, responses to this um, proposal. And someone just quite happily demonstrated all the ways that you could possibly say uh, F you or, or the equivalent, uh, avoiding all the filters, using all the special keys that you've got on your keyboard to, uh, you know. And it was quite obvious that if someone, as you say, wants to get around it, they, they can. But as... John quite rightly points out you need to have it the tick box for your ratings and everything else. So as long as it's not stupid, I don't think it should be too much of an issue. Um, the other point they said might be an issue was the fact that do they have a um, an open system where anybody can hail you with a voice chat or do you have to actually accept it? So if you have got um, a spotty 13-year-old insulting your mother, are you uh, prepared to just let that one go straight through or should you have to accept the message before it can be broadcast to you? I think it's fun gameplay role-playing to have a thing that comes up that says incoming hail and you choose whether or not to accept it. I think that's that's a nice trope from kind of sci-fi movies that it would be fun to actually have in-game. I think they, cutting, they could make a feature of that. Yeah, and cutting them off as well. Because, totally. um, <laughs> you know, you've, you've had that happen in, uh, in several games where, you know, you're midway through captain to captain having a chat and uh, suddenly one decides to cut the other off and they don't know what they're going to do next. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all good. I think that's all, uh, all good fun. And besides, we don't want too much uh, sort of blocking on this because otherwise John and, and Penthux won't be able to roleplay with each other <laughs> properly, will they? <laughs> no, a uh, big shout, to, shout out to Penthux, who is the, uh, yeah, probably the hardcore roleplayer that we come across in the, uh, on the forums. I think- well, I hate to say it, given the factions that both of us are in favour of, um, I don't think there's going to be much comms anyway. I think as soon as he sees my name appear above a ship somewhere, um, he will just attack me. So I don't <laughs> have to worry about any foul language from him. Well, I, I'm sure that you will probably want to reply with a little bit more imperial propaganda to uh, incite him, but, you know... <laughs> Cool. Okay. Well, if nobody's got anything else to say on that point, we'll move on to the next uh, DDF topic, which is uh, quite a nice, interesting, juicy one. It's the subject of news feeds in Elite Dangerous. Uh, and obviously the goal of news feeds is, as it states in the DDF, to provide the player with useful and relevant information about the game world and present that information in a varied and interesting fashion, but be extensible to allow extra content uh, or features as the game develops. So it needs to be expandable. So the way these are going to work, the news feeds in Elite Dangerous um, are going to be presented, as we said earlier on, in one of the screens in your cockpit. The, the system itself breaks down into two parts. You've got the events, 
uh, and you've also got the channels. So the channel, the channels are the way that it's going to be presented to you. So things like you'll have the the Federation official Federation channel, the official Imperial channel, and maybe the independent channel, etc. Uh, and then the events are things such as you know, direct player actions, stuff that's going on in the galaxy, or stuff that Frontier Development actually inject into the environment themselves. So an example of player actions would be you know, your mission completed, your mission kills, player deaths, or career events, um, whereas indirect stuff would be traffic in the system, piracy in the system, you know, market economy stuff going up and down, uh, crime in the system, or any changes to the political faction. And the stuff that uh, Frontier could inject would be the stuff that we've heard David Braben talk about, such as famine, civil war, uh, crime going up, or whether or not there's any sort of major military movements or instiction into that system. It's something actually that has been sort of quite a tricky thing to to map out. I mean, you and I both know, Foz, from the presentation in the, the DDF, most of the response from the DDF members has been incredibly positive. The mm. um, You know, when the, the proposal was put forward, everybody went, yeah, this sounds fantastic. We really like it. Um, the devil's in the detail, really. Um, I know having spoken to Michael about this one a, a couple of weeks prior to, to it being put forward, um, there's actually, you know, there are quite a few things that are, are going to be quite thorny um, implementations, as it were. And, you know, that's that's quite a tricky challenge for him. He's, he's had to put an awful lot of thought into this process. So, you know, we've we've kind of bandied around a few ideas and, and sort of checked things backwards and forwards. And um, it's great that it's now a, a really robust proposal it is going to be about how they can manage to, to program it and implement it. Uh, these will all feed into the, the channels. So you'll have dedicated channels such as the Imperial Times, the Federation News Network, or the Daily Hunter for you know, specifically Bounty Hunter-related news. And each of those different channels will portray the same information in slightly different ways. What do you guys think about this? I think it's interesting. I like the idea, though, of these different kinds of papers. And I think it'd probably be too hard to do, but it'd be almost nice if there was some way that different types of news publications could have slightly different biases in the same way that real newspapers have biases. So maybe you get like an imperial you know, newspaper that talks about these dreadful things that the Federation have done. And then the same events are reported by a federal newspaper saying about this wonderful progress. And then like in the middle, you have something like the sun which says tits and football <laughs> <laughs> an extra level to the channels is the inclusion of adverts now adverts are content added to the channels to provide some color and variety uh, the idea is they should also add some humor as seen in some of the previous league games uh, they also add a bit of authenticity and depth by expanding the fiction within the universe now frontier developments are proposing that these come in two forms uh, authored so adverts that have been authored, so the, they're hoping to get the fans involved with this as well as write some of them in-house. And uh, the second one is procedural. So there's template adverts for things that are local to the system. So Labian Brandy would be an example. And these are generated in the same system to create a bit of local specialities. I don't know about you guys, but when I saw adverts, I really got quite excited because obviously you know, adverts are something that's very dear to you know, our station's heart, the lay radio adverts. Uh, and I, I would hope that they do exactly that. They add a bit of humour and they add a bit of um, <laughs> a bit of expansion to the fiction within the game, not the game. Well, Follow. yeah, I mean, it'd be great if they took our idea for adverts and put some humour into it. I, th- I think it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'm excited about the procedural stuff because obviously all my scripts are procedurally generated. I've got an infinite number of monkeys out the back. <laughs> Every now and again, they come up with gold. <laughs> the only problem is they have to share one typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> That's what takes the time. It's carnage out there. <laughs> uh, but what about the serious aspect of this? The the fact that they can actually leverage the community, which is obviously one of our strongest points in Elite Dangerous. And the idea is of having you know, these fiction authors also writing a bit of... Um, uh, a bit of fiction for the game in terms of adverts, I think, is a great idea. I think I'm I'm very pleased about that. I think uh, you know any tie-in that brings the the writers um, as part of what's there is is good, and it's it's something that was done in previous games as well. So uh, all a nice thing. Okay, so moving on to newsletter number five, Shipporn, the sequel. In this newsletter, Ashley's taken us through some of the Imperial fighter schematics, which were quite interesting. The rendering and lighting of the Federation capital ship and the freighter number three, which is the first sort of real freighter image we've actually seen, which is going to go into game. And I don't know what you guys think, but I think it is but ugly. Absolutely horrendously ugly. Uh, and I can't wait to fly it. I think it's great. Because all freighters should be ugly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, I, I really like it. It's got lots of things that I like in a spaceship. Um, retractable wings, uh, legs that obviously, you know, go all the way up, as it were. It's got quite a nice feature that sort of reminds me a little bit of Thunderbird 2. There's that sort of rear view shot, and you can see a sort of passenger, you know, entry ramp uh, from this kind of bulky bit just below the cockpit. Uh, quite like that. And I like the um, the fact that they're obviously thinking about how the sort of standardised cargo pods fit inside. There's like a diagram um, showing like a sort of cross section of the ship and it shows like a cargo area with lots of little boxes in and that works well for me i like that yeah by the looks of it the hull's quite thick yeah um, but i'm thinking you know <laughs> if you need to get a couple of boxes of cargo somewhere this is this is the, the ship to use no i i actually i really actually liked the design because it's something so much different from what we've seen you know it's it's a, it's a massive departure from with the imperial you see the beauty instantly with the federation you don't have the beauty but it's not a dichotomy it's a different type of beauty it's more of a utilitarian beauty um you got the sharp edges and it looks very attractive anyway but this when you look at it you think everything has a purpose and they didn't really care you know obviously they, they cared so much that they made it symmetrical but that is about it but at the same time, you think, this is the kind of craft that will get things done. And that's what I like about it. I thought it was a bit like a, a slightly long raptor from Battlestar. Yeah. Mm. I, yeah, I can see that. Certainly in some of the pictures anyway. Yeah, it, I, I like it. You know, don't get me wrong. I'd probably, if it was me, the little tiny snub wings on the side, I'd probably get rid of them. Yeah, I, um, I didn't really see. Was a ship that size, how much sort of aerodynamic value they're going to add going through... Um, you know, going through the atmosphere with just those those small wings for such a large craft, but yeah, I'd, I'd probably lose those, and I'd I'd probably go for for a bit more bulk over the top. But you know, it's it's fair design. I think it's I think it's nice. I like the last picture with the with the landing icons extended mm. and uh, uh, the cargo delivery. I think that's really good. Actually, yeah. if they added a little spike on the front, um, it's almost War Rocket Ajax from Flash Gordon. I was about to say exactly the same thing. <laughs> In fact, you know what the wings are for, don't you? 
It's for Brian Blessed to stand it's, on. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I, I was thinking. I, I can give you all a tip now. Don't don't ever heckle Brian Blessed in pantomime with, oh, really? lines, with lines from Flash Gordon. Don't ever heckle Brian Blessed Are we talking pantomime. from personal experience? We are, which is why I don't talk about Flash Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> it's just never a good idea when he starts quoting his own lines in a panto to then quote the next line in the show back to him because he doesn't know what you're on about. Stops the whole panto and everybody looks at you. Don't heckle Brian Blessed in panto. Don't do it. (laughs) Crashing on then. So obviously (laughs) the... um... The interesting part from the the images that they've they've thrown up from uh, freighter number three is um, the the cockpit, which moves us on to the maker's mark. Now, obviously, with the uh, planets, they have already suggested that they're trying to make the planets uh, from space light up in such a way that you can actually distinguish between an imperial planet, a federation planet, and an independent planet. They're trying to go for the same sort of thing with the shipbuilders, so that each shipbuilder will have a distinguishing feature that allows you to spot... Uh, as you're flying around the universe, which one came from which shipyard. Now, the way they're doing it is through the cockpits. Now, can you guys look at that freighter and say which uh, Metromaker it comes from? If you like. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm looking back at it. (laughs) It's quite obvious, obviously. It it is, yeah. From the concept art and stuff, they're already trying to uh, incorporate this idea that each maker's mark goes into it. So the Freighter 3... I think it's quite easily recognisable as the Lake on uh, Lake on Spaceways. Uh, they have the the cockpit that's sort of segmented and cut into small panels. Now, what do you guys think about this? Obviously, we've seen it for the planets where Imperials are going to have sort of circular ideas, and the, the Federation is going to have the, the sort of block uh, square patterns and stuff. Do you think each ship should have a you know, a particular design of cockpit that singles it out? I think if you're going to, you know, in your kind of game world and your game fiction, I think if you're going to care about the the ship designers, then I think they do need to have some distinctive design between them. I mean, just out and about on the roads, you know, you can spot cars that are by different manufacturers. And I think if they're going for that same kind of vibe, then I think, you know, it's totally worthwhile and you need to make sure that all those designers have a distinctive thing because these are you know these ships are commercial products at the end of the day and i wonder if there's going to be more of an element with this game of kind of choosing between ships that actually have very similar performance because obviously with uh, elite and frontier you picked the ship largely over the kind of cargo space or weapon mountings or whatever that it gave you and there was only really one or two ships in each tier but I wonder, actually, if you'll have a situation with this game whereby there are multiple ships of a similar kind of class and performance, and actually the choice will largely be one of marketing. That would be very interesting. I have a particular appreciation for it because of the fact that, um, as people who are regular listeners would know, um, I submitted the Corporation's Guide to Frontier as a concept um, a couple of months ago now. And this is starting to actually see some of the the elements of some of the things that I managed to research and, you know, collate for them, uh, start to see some of the names appear in the newsletter. So um, what they've managed to do here is where last week I was kind of, or last newsletter, I was kind of looking at it going, yeah, you know, I, I want to see ships, but, you know, I want to see them in the game. 
what they've done this week is said, this is the one that's going to be in the game with the freighter. Okay, great, I can get behind that. And these are all the different designs of all the different corporations um, that are going to be in the game too. Oh, now that's fantastic. So now we've got some names to places. And some of these names, if you know your history, you'll know a little bit about where some of them come from. I mean, most people know Falcon de Lacey. That's fine. But Saud Kruger, Lake on Spaceways, they're interesting. You know, if you look at some of the other ships that were produced by them, and if you look at the other ships that were produced by Zorgan Peterson, that makes a very interesting point on uh, what might feature in Elite Dangerous. For those people, obviously, I, I don't include myself because I am yeah, well up with my elite history. Do you want to just tell us who uh, you know, Sauer Kruger and Lake on Spaceways, what sort of ships they were designing that well, Lake, some of the Lake guys and, might, uh, might recognize? Lake on Spaceways designed the, uh, the transporter. It was from page 60 of the elite manual in the, uh, I think it's the, the Archimedes version or the Amiga version. Then you got Saud Kruger designed the orbital shuttles. They were from page 59. So, you know, both well-entrenched companies in the, uh, the game system. Gutemea. Now, Gutemea featured quite a lot in some of the fiction, uh, particularly in Life on the Frontier or Stories of Life on the Frontier. Uh, so, you know, they were an obvious fit towards uh, manufacturing imperial goods because they were an imperial company. And then Zorgan Peterson, they made the Ferdelance. Ah. Now the why did I think that uh, Falcon de Lacey made the Ferdelance? I don't know why you thought Falcon de Lacey made the Ferdelance, because you're wrong. Um, <laughs> Zorgan Peterson made the Ferdelance, and obviously that's the only ship Zorgan Peterson made previous to, uh, uh, to this you know, iteration of the game. So having Zorgan Peterson mentioned in this newsletter, I don't know, does that mean the Ferdelance is making a comeback? be interesting to see. So if you've got the guide open in front of you, who did Falcon de Lacey make? Uh, Falcon de Lacey made all sorts of ships. They started with a Sidewinder. Uh, they went on to to appropriate the Cobra because in the original game, if I remember rightly, the Cobra that you owned was manufactured by Falcon de Lacey, but the Cobra itself was made by Cowlin McGrath. So a bit strange. We weren't sure, you know, did that mean that Falcon de Lacey bought out Cowlin McGrath? It was never really explained We've actually we've submitted some information to you know to try and cover some of these these elements and uh, and see what's there. So you know you'll probably find out more later on. Um, so yeah, so you know, interesting in itself. Um, core design, core design. I think because that's not a a historical company name uh, within the old fiction, as far as I know. I think that's a rename for Core Industrial Corporation, and they were the people that built the ASP. Yeah, that is actually very interesting in terms of seeing what sort of depths you guys have gone to in order to you know, create the fiction and the backstory of all these things. Uh, it is a shame, uh, I'll say it on record, it is a shame that this, uh, this background information isn't going to be released by Frontier. Obviously, we found that out last week because there's obviously a, a heck of a lot of work. We've said it before, but there's a heck of a lot of work gone into creating the backstory and the, you know, the foundations of this universe. Well, I, I, I don't know about that, Foz. I think... Um if you were to see all of the information as it is, as raw as it, you know, as it's sort of put together for, for people to write fiction and to do other bits and pieces, then I think it's, it's not necessarily the best thing to have happen. You may well find later on that some of this information is going to feature in, in guides. I mean, what they've already done with the Sidewinder is give you a schematic. You know, it's going to be something then to, to look further and go, okay, well, 
maybe we want a data card for the sidewinder maybe we want you know manufacturing dates and other information about the the details of manufacturing the you know the current game we've already got some of the old stuff but you know maybe there's there's a bit more to come into that and you know you may well find that in game when you go and go to a shipyard where one of these companies is you're going to find out more information about the company so wouldn't you rather go journey around elite dangerous's universe and find out this information than have it published for you in a word doc it depends. I'm quite sad in the fact that I quite like the, um, you know, the guide, the, <laughs> the sort of the Hayes manual to the Starship Enterprise and stuff. I always got quite a kick out of reading those. Um, so, no, from that perspective, I wouldn't mind. Sure. Well, I, I think, I mean, even then you're looking at a, a, a document that's designed for publication. And I think the the key thing here is, I mean, if if Frontier do decide later on to to look at some of this historical information and look at some of the, the fictional information and go, okay, we're going to make it into some kind of form that you know would be accessible for fans and, and infuse people, then that's a decision to make then. But um, at this stage, you know, it is stuff that it's, it's very functional, you know, and you know, we, we kind of need it to know where things are. But at, at the same time, it's lovely that people are interested because, of course, you want them to be interested. And, of course, gradually, as we, we develop more layers or you know more bits and pieces are written, it's going to make it all the more fascinating. Great stuff. Well, that just leads us on to the final piece of the newsletter, which was the further example of the procedural generated uh, planets and asteroids. Uh, I think everybody can agree, it seems we kind of made the mistake last time thinking it was concept art, that these are actually quite impressive structures. And if you've got a whole universe populated with these... Uh, it's going to be quite a quite a pretty beautiful place to be flying around. Yeah, I I apologise directly for this. I I kind of skirted past this without really uh, um, clicking on anything. And at the same time, I've got quite a, a lot of journeying experience in Space Engine, and I have to say these planets look fantastic, and they look a lot better than Space Engine. And the final piece of the newsletter this week is the Elite Fiction Drabble. Uh, this week it comes from Dave Hughes, entitled "To Market." To Market by Dave Hughes. The manifest says they're food. The creatures just sat there looking at Carlo, their dirty, leathery hides covered in dirt and grime from the cargo bay floor. They escaped from the cage, Reed said. Carlo glanced at the soil-covered cage, then back to the SKPs with an expression of revulsion. They're hideous. They're really popular in the core, Reet explained. We make good profit on them. But they're filthy. They're covered in their own waste for Randomia's sake. People eat them. Apparently, Reet shrugged. Crazy, Carla said, shaking his head. What are they called? Reet glanced at her manifest. Pigs. Community Corner this week. Alan, start us off with the Writers' Forum. What's going on? Pretty quiet. Uh, we're starting to get into some of the nitty-gritty of answering questions in relation to specific novels and uh, some of the technology and the other bits and pieces around that. We've got more information on the Elite Federation of Pilot Pilots, which is really useful. Uh, that information is obviously is helping the writers work out some of the connections between different characters that they've got in, uh, in the books that they're, they're choosing to write but um, things are really good. 
Okay, great news. So, John, I believe you've got a reveal for this week's Community Corner. Yeah, so I, I, I started a project, and it's called uh, Battle for Lave Station. And uh, basically, and I don't want to big it up too much, uh, because obviously everyone's very excited waiting for Elite Dangerous. Uh, but this is just a, um, an Elite-inspired mini-game. But it's multiplayer, which unfortunately may upset some people, because that means it's PvP. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a very brief... Um, scenario as i described it which me which puts um 32 pilots 16 v 16 if if um it's a full game in dogfighting combat um outside of outside of lave station and of course the the narrative is provided by the the great alan stroud uh, more information to come but yeah it's just simply a multiplayer deathmatch game people in um in spaceships blowing each other up it's going to be a lot of fun and um, I'm currently looking for alpha players. I, I hate to say it, most of the places are taken, so I'm not going to throw it out to people. But hopefully in the next couple of weeks there will be a game appearing, at hopefully a lot of fanfare, and I hope to be shooting you all soon. Yeah, the premise of Battle for Live Station, we've discussed this in a small amount of detail in relation to uh, the Live Revolution, and there are certain aspects of uh, of the book Lave Revolution that um, are already predetermined. So we already know certain things that happen uh, in the book. And what I've been able to do is have a chat with John and John sort of looked at uh, his ideas and his programming and his brilliant abilities to, to create a, a tiny little multiplayer game. And we've dramatized that. Um, it, you know, it's not going to fit everything. It's not going uh, to necessarily go out exactly the way the scenario pans out in the book because you know, you won't want it to. You want the players to actually enjoy it and you'll be able to change it and, and, and play it around slightly differently. But it does give you a bit of an insight, um, a little bit of an idea of where, where things may go and should be should be really good fun. So, John, have you done much programming before? Well, actually, um, believe it or not, it's it's my day job. That's all I've ever done. So, um, yeah, to be fair, this is the first proper, full-on, production-level 3D game that I've written. I've, I've tinkered and I've done a lot of game development, you know, small things with different toolkits and things like that. But this is the first thing that I'm willing for the public, you know, the first thing I'm putting together for the public to see. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting for me. But at the same time, I'm quite positive because um, I've picked a very small game in terms of the content, you know, as in the gameplay and the mechanics. But at the same time, I think it's going to be interesting because we get to involve a lot of content from the elite universe, particularly what Alan's contributed, and, and hopefully some of the humour from Lave Radio will feature in there as well. John, that sounds absolutely great, mate. Next, we're moving on to a special feature for this episode. Obviously, we do the writer's interview, but quite a few people have asked if we can get a little bit more content from the writers to use for the podcast. So what we've asked is for the writers to actually come back to us and answer a few questions that have been posted on the forum. So we'll be back right after this. This is Darren Gray from Tales from the Frontier, the elite anthology of short stories. Hello, Dave Hughes here from Elite Encounters. Hey everybody, it's Lisa Wolf from Tales from the Frontier here. Hi, this is John Harper from the novel And Here the Wheel. Hi, Marcus Uzimatsa from the Tales from the Frontier elite anthology team. Do you find it difficult working through the submission process? Does it ever demotivate you? Or is it a good source of inspiration? 
I don't know about for others, but I've found the process so far fairly easy. Um, I write a synopsis, I work on it, I submit it, and Frontier come back with a yes or a no. And at the same time, even if they say no, they'll come back with some uh, suggestions. If they say yes, well, they all always come back with suggestions to help improve it. That bit's been relatively easy. Um, I don't know what the final submission will be like, but I guess we'll find out when we get there. It does demotivate at times. I mean, I don't know about other writers, but really if I have an idea that I'd really like knocked on the head, then, yeah, sure, it depresses me. And for a while I'm sort of thinking, well, why am I bothering? But at the same time, it means I can now let go of that idea and start to work on other ideas to play with new concepts, new ideas, new, new characters. And I went from having one idea that I was really attached to, which Frontier said no to, to having about eight or nine ideas. And from them I was able to get three that were good, that I felt were strong, and from there I've worked down to the one that I'm actually working on. So really I think it's also led to a much stronger story than I could have produced in the first place, just having that extra... Uh, restriction on me so yeah it's been demotivating but it's also been a good source of inspiration well for me the answer is both in some ways it can be good in some ways it can be bad you come up with a great idea that you love and then it gets shot down and uh, that can be demotivating but then after a few moments it does inspire you to then find another answer and that different answer is normally better and that is quite inspiring in itself that you've been pushed forced into a better solution and that keeps you going and then on the plus side when you put something past frontier and they give you the thumbs up and say yes we'll put that in the game yes that sounds fine don't have a problem with that that's good that is really inspiring and that just makes you want to dance around the room so it demotivates and then it motivates it's quite a good experience so far and i'm really enjoying it uh in my case no i wrote my story in december even before frontier was accepting any, any submissions and I was rather certain at that point that my story would be accepted. Uh, the entire story takes place in a one-star system. It doesn't affect any large-scale politics or involve anything that I would uh, imagine affects the uh, elite game in any way. I do know that some of the authors have had some uh, more steps in their submission process. Uh, they have had to make bigger or smaller or bigger changes to the basic premises in order to have them accepted for at the frontier. Uh, but this is, I think, just something that we have to accept. Uh, we have our own vision and we have to make that vision fit the vision that frontier has of Elite, elite 4. So the, we have to have, be able to make some compromises with our stories and make them fit in the same universe with each other at the game. In my case, when I submitted my first draft to Michael, uh, he asked me to uh, reconsider some details. The biggest thing, actually, was to change the name of one ship to something else. Michael felt that the original name that I had thought for it wasn't actually very fitting for the Elite Universe, and he was quite right about that. Uh, but of course we have to remember that we will still have to submit our final drafts to Frontier for the final acceptance. So <laughs> I don't really know what to expect from that. It might change it completely. Because my story has only been uh, read by Michael thus far. And I know that there will be more people reading it 
when we submitted later in the year to, for Frontier to read. They will make certain that some all the points, that, uh, all the details that we have in the, our stories actually fit with the Elite Universe. And that will be an interesting process. We'll see. Perhaps I'll actually be frustrated at some some point with all that's, that will be happening. Um, haven't actually gone through a submission process for a story as yet, but a lot of the concepts for the role-playing game had to go through Michael Brooks initially before I even started the Kickstarter project. Um, so I've not found it tough so far, if you want a sort of side uh, tangent to that. What's been difficult is trying to write something without perhaps the information that we need um, in order to write certain scenes or to have certain concepts in place. For example, there's a big conversation on the Writers Forum at the moment regarding equipment, not equipment, uh, technology, that's the word, and how it would work. And obviously that's quite important to my book because I need to have a an equipment list and a technology list for things that characters can buy or how things would work there so that, so that the GMs can write stories around it. But the majority of the authors are generally saying that there's not much of a need to have that in any great depth for their books because it would detract from the actual story, which is a very good point, and I do agree with it. Yeah. Well, the process itself is reasonably simple. Uh, come up with a synopsis, give it to Michael Brooks. Uh, he gives it back with any changes, and uh, you make those changes go back, and, uh, and there might be a bit back and forth. I deliberately chose something that I thought would be easily accepted, and it was. It was easily accepted. It's not so hard to do that, really, with a short story, so uh, I don't have much to complain about there. I must admit, it is hard with some of the details being unknown. The game is not finished yet, and even upon release, things like planetary landings coming out of the cockpit and things like that, that won't happen in the first release. So details about what things will be like outside the cockpit won't be known. So uh, there's a few grey areas that aren't to be determined yet, and they can have a big impact on the story. So I envisage there'll be a bit of coming back and re-editing a few things to fit later. But for for now, the submissions process itself is really not that hard. I don't find it demotivating, but I'm quite used to game writing and having to follow other people's rules a little bit. Is it a good source of inspiration? No, I wouldn't say so. Often when writing, if you have certain restrictions, that can be a good source of inspiration. Through any creative process, putting yourself in a, a box with hard walls can be very inspiring because you come with all sorts of innovative, creative things to, to help stretch those walls a bit or to, to work within those walls in special ways. This isn't so good because we don't have hard walls so much at the moment. We have a lot of grey, murky walls of unsure details. And although it can be good to get ideas knocked back and to have to rethink things, it's not always good if the answer is we don't know yet. And there's quite a few answers like that at the moment, but I think over time that will improve. Thank you, Commanders. Communication channels closed. Okay, so that's going to do it for the Community Corner, just leaving us with feedback. And feedback this week, uh, iTunes reviews have gone up from uh, Gustuso and One Vigor. And Chris, what about Escape Velocity? Yeah, I've had some great new reviews for that this week. Uh, I've got a review from The Fozzer, who I think is familiar to you. You, my uh, brother. Yep, yeah, a review from Zimrich. Uh, and a review from uh, one Vigor, who has um, actually had a nice tweet from him. He's uh, he's drawing, he draws cartoons, uh, and he's drawing a scene apparently from uh, one of the episodes, which is cool. It'd be great to see. Excellent, that would be great to see. Uh, we've had an email this week from Craig Alderson, uh, who goes in the forum by uh, Commissar Augustus, uh, and he was letting us know about an artist called Kaima. Uh, full disclosure, that's his younger brother. 
who sent us some music. A shout out to Andrew Winter. Some may remember him as the guy who created the EliteStats.co.uk page on the Kickstarter and then used the Google Ads funds to buy a space station, which he dedicated to the Kickstarter comments page community. Okay, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. All that's left to do is power down the Sidewinder, and playing us out this week is Kaima with the track Huge Universe.
You're just all you can think is bloopers now, isn't it? That is all you're doing. I can hear it in your voice. You are just sitting there going, ah, bloopers. <laughs> yeah. Hold on, two seconds. Leave a pause. Alan, what are you talking about? Um, but but joking aside, I mean, you know, the ugly thing. I I, I think it's good because, like, you know, it's like a woman, I guess. Oh, you no, know. I don't know. I really don't know where you're going with this one, John. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know that the ugly ones, you know, they, they try the hardest. So... <laughs> where, where, where John was going was the cutting room floor. That's where he was going. <laughs>